0: Our passage today is Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 16 through 34. It'll be a good look today at an interesting passage here in the book of Acts. Would you stand as we read God's holy word, recognizing this is inspired, authoritative for us today. Acts 17, starting with verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we have seen here in terms of what happened on that interesting week and more in in Athens, and we just pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives here so many hundreds of years later. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we were last with Paul and Silas, Luke, and Timothy in Philippi, as we read in Acts chapter 16. And the first verses of chapter 17 describe how the group next traveled southwest to Thessalonica, a distance of approximately 70 miles. Then they left Thessalonica and traveled to Berea, which was another 45 miles southwest. So they're making their their way down the coastline. And all the while, a group of people followed behind them, stirring up crowds in every city where they would establish the church and preach the gospel. And at some time in Berea, Paul decided to go ahead and in advance of the group to Athens. We're not told why he thought he needed to go by himself or even to go to Athens, though in many ways it's not surprising because Athens was the intellectual center of the Greek world and still was one of the most cultured cities in the Roman Empire, but it was 200 miles south of Berea, so he likely traveled by ship. We're told in in Acts 17 that he was escorted by some of the Bereans and And our passage picks up the events once he arrived in the city. So verse 60 tells us that while Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas and the others to join him in Athens, that his spirit, it says, was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And that word translated saw, here is the same word from which we get the word theater. It really has a sense of Paul kind of watching, observing This movement and uh, life of idolatry all around him. And in the first century, Athens had a population of 10,000 people. So a pretty small city. But guess how many statues of gods and goddesses it had? 30,000. That's three statues for every one person in that city. It's no wonder that a Roman visitor during that time wrote of Athens that it was easier to find a god in the city than to find a man. It was a city of Socrates and of Plato and Aristotle. It was the center of Greek government and the home of the Parthenon and the temple of Athena. And when Rome conquered the Greek empire out of respect for that heritage, this long history of philosophy and culture and government and the arts... Well, the Romans allowed the city to maintain her own institutions as a free and allied city within the empire. So it was this little pocket of Greek history. And so here's Paul, surrounded by 30,000 idols and a city that's consumed with paying homage to them. And it reminds me of a visit with Darren Larson and I, we, we many years ago went to the city of Yangon in Myanmar where we visited the famous Shwedagon Pagoda. And the Shwedagon Pagoda is also known as the Golden Pagoda. It stands 370 feet tall and is covered in 30 tons of pure gold. Able to be seen from every point in Yangon. And at the top of the pagoda is a crown well, at least what they call a crown. It consists of 5,500 diamonds, 2,300 rubies, and at the very top of that crown is a 72-carat diamond. The total estimated worth of all the gold and jewels on that pagoda is more than $5 U.S. dollars. That's more than 10% of the national product of the entire country of Myanmar. So this pagoda is a temple... And it's surrounded by a large complex of shrine after shrine of Buddhist gods, and goddesses. And as a visitor, you walk through this complex and you watch, just as Paul once watched, people at every moment giving sacrifices in shrine after shrine after shrine after shrine. That was hard enough. But the most grievous thing that I personally saw Uh, maybe Darren remembers it, is when we saw 30 or so children that were all in a group with shaved heads and uniforms being led in chant after chant as they continued to bow and prostrate themselves to idols. And that's what I imagine it was like for Paul a day because it was just something twisting right inside where Paul says, provoked his spirit. And it wasn't that he was a stranger to idolatry But to see such a dramatic, intense, and a pervasive scene here in Athens provoked him. And verse 17 says that as a result of that provocation, he reasoned not only at the synagogue, but also in the marketplace every day. And that might seem like a disconnect. How do we go from being provoked in spirit to reasoning in the marketplace? But you have to realize that when it refers to the marketplace, it's referring to what was known in Greek as the agora. It was the... Not just the marketplace, it was the exchange of ideas. It's where not only did you have a lot of shrines, but you also had the philosophers, and various meetings of important people, all would be taking place in the center place called the Agora or the marketplace. And it's here in the northwest corner of that area, where you would find the court of the Areopagus. They would meet and rule on matters of religion and morals and philosophy. So the court the court had once met up on the hill on, on the Acropolis in the Temple of Ares, who is the god of war and disputes, but they had moved the court down just because it was difficult to travel up to the Acropolis. And and so they brought it down into the agora in Paul's day, and, and this is where you'd also have the Stoics and Epicureans and other philosophical groups uh, that, that are teaching and, and speaking publicly. Now, you may have heard the term Stoics, and, and some of you have heard the term Epicureans. They're the only philosopher groups that are actually ever mentioned in the Bible, even though there were more at this time in uh, Paul's day. But the Stoics were named at the Stoa Poikile. That's where that name Stoic comes from. It's a painted colon, colonnade in the Agora. And they were pantheists. They'd stand by this colonnade day after day. They were pantheists, who believe that every living thing possesses part of a world soul. They also believe that everything in the world happens according to very determined cause and effect processes. And so there's no such thing as human freedom, really no such thing as ultimate meaning. And so they were not much different than today's modern day scientists, right, who believe that if you reason and rationally think through things, you can understand cause and effect and and be able to predict things and so on, but there's no real meaningful future. Verse 18 tells us that Paul talked in the Agora with both them, the Stoics, and the Epicureans. And these Epicureans were a lot different than the Stoics. While they believed in human-like gods, they also thought that those gods had no interest in human beings. And therefore, the highest virtue was to pursue pleasure. They didn't believe in anything after death, and... And if you don't have anything to really live for or to sacrifice for in an eternal future, then you should live for the now, right? Uh, they were not necessarily, when we say pursuing pleasure, I don't want you to think crass pleasure necessarily, because the Epicureans, they were refined pleasure, right? They were freedom from pain, freedom from excess emotion, freedom from superstition. They thought that everything happens by chance. And their mentality is that we live for the here and now, for tomorrow we may die. And in that regard, unlike the Stoics who might be compared to modern day scientists, the Epicureans would be more like the modern man and woman. And society is consumed with living for the moment, particularly living for self, agnostic about the future. And one thing that the Epicureans and the Stoics both agreed in, even though they were in polar opposites in so many ways, was that Paul was a babbler. They thought he was strange and said hard to understand things. And that term babbler is a term that literally meant seed gatherer. And it referred to those who gathered little pieces of cloth to sell in the marketplace at cheap prices. And that's what they thought of Paul. We thought of him as this guy that's gathering these little tiny pieces of cloth ideas, if you will. And he's trying to gather them together and go into the marketplace and make something of himself and sell them at a cheap price. Now, where do you take a troublesome seed gatherer? You take him to the court of the Areopagus. Remember that's where I said you you would take someone where they determined and made rulings on matters of morals and philosophy and religion. If anyone would understand what Paul was talking about, it would be them. And they would also rule as to whether he could keep saying it. So verse 20 says they wanted to know what he was teaching. And then Luke in verse 21 comments, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I think this is the most interesting verse in the entire passage. It's such a great comment by Luke. Luke. First of all, the very ones who are accusing Paul of babbling are the ones who actually are the ones that babble all the time about something new. But it's also so much like today, right? A society that is consumed with the novel and the latest fad. So before we look at what Paul said to the court of the Areopagus, and because it's going to be relevant in a little bit, I want us to to understand better why this is so relevant today. I want us to see this this comparison today. The people to whom Paul is speaking may have been dressed in first century clothes, but their worldview and their interests, particularly this constant craving for the novel, is the same thing we see today, particularly in what we call popular culture. It's been a while since we've talked about that, but I just want to quickly define for us, when we talk about popular culture, First of all, we're talking culture is the effort to bring order to daily life. That's how we build our cities, express ourselves, how we communicate with one another, spend our time. These are all ways to bring order to and structure to life. And of course, God at the very beginning established an order, right? When he created the universe and he gave a mandate to Adam and Eve to take dominion over the creation to to develop a culture that acknowledged him, honored and glorified him. And so what happens is at the very beginning, God says, culture, this expression of yours as a a society needs to honor me, needs to glorify me, needs to speak to my principles. So it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And as God's creation, we have that responsibility to bring God-glorifying order to this world. But popular secular culture develops because man without God is fundamentally unhappy and not, it has no firm eternal direction, no absolute values. And popular culture allows its participants to be distracted from that which is absolute. Certainly that which reflects God's because its values are the values of the populace. That's why it's called popular culture. It's values of the populace, and these values change with each generation, sometimes multiple times within a generation. In fact, part of the excitement of popular culture is that it is constantly changing and new, which makes the young think that it's their own culture. And there's this constant undercurrent that what is now is better, not because it is somehow more reflective of God, in the standards, but because it is what? New. Right? It's new. Now I'll have one more aspect of popular culture that ties in with what I said about the Epicureans. Popular culture has a desire for instant gratification. So the world not only wants the novel, it wants it now. One author said that the single greatest factor in the destruction of the Protestant work ethic and the creation of the modern age was the invention of credit. So previously you had to work hard to save in order to buy. Now with credit cards, installment loans, you can indulge instantly and go into debt. And add to that the fact that much of our technology exists to satisfy our impatience. We have near instantaneous access to information Right? Provided by computers, we can communicate instantly via text messages and chatting. We can have most things delivered to our doors in hours. We don't even need to go outside our homes anymore. And because popular secular culture is interested in novelty and instant gratification, it has no time, no ability to afford to think about or afford to be analyzed by anything representing absolute value. So the constant message is you get to choose, right? This is a dismantling of, of really our institutional order. It's, it's, Wikipedia is, the, is a, an ultimate example, I think, of, or the ultimate example of, of the destruction of the institution of education and learning and, and kind of establishing over generations what things mean. But now with Wikipedia, everybody gets to add their own contribution to what things mean. And the constant message, like I say, is you can choose, you're the master of your fate, you are the final judge in setting your standards, and by the way, you're worth it. And you deserve a break. Today. Mm -hmm. Right now. And that was the same context in Athens. When Paul was brought before the Areopagus. And we pick up his comments in verse 22. He says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Is this a compliment? By a man who was so provoked in his spirit over idolatry? No, it's a recognition of what Paul talks about in his letter to Romans when he says that all men and women are religious. All men and women are religious. We either worship the Creator or we suppress the truth of the Creator in a lie and replace the Creator with the created, right? According to Romans chapter 1. And we serve the creature, he says in Romans, rather than the creator. And So he says, I perceive you're very religious in that way. And what he does with the statement is clever. He makes it seem like a compliment when he says next. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. It's a great way to get their attention. Because the Athenians wanted to make sure that with their 30,000 statues and shrines that they hadn't missed something. Was there possibly one God or goddess we missed? Well, Paul told them, he was able to tell them about that one that they did miss. But the one that they missed was the very God who had made the world and everything in it, the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth who needs nothing from man, but rather himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, the Greeks and the Romans saw the gods and goddesses as not much more than superhuman beings who could interfere in human life and expected to be worshipped, but also who fought amongst themselves and could even be injured. They could take away life. They could even in some instances bring to life, but they were not themselves the foundation of life as Paul described. And so this is a very unusual God, indeed, that Paul was describing. In verses 26 and 27, Paul said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, determining a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And what Paul is saying here. Saying the earth was formed and furnished to be a home for humanity. That certainly was not something i would heard before. God allotting spaces for each nation. Blessing them with what they needed to survive. Why? What was the ultimate purpose of God? Having created these things, fashioning as a home for man. It was so that they would seek God. Every blessing that we are given is intended. Hear this, because this is an application for us. Every blessing that we are given is intended to ultimately cause us to seek God. If you have a job, does that cause you to acknowledge God and his providence? Do you have a wife, a family, a home? Does that cause you to seek God, or are you becoming more self-serving and self-sufficient? And then the next comments from Paul were especially profound, for he is actually not far, Paul says, from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If you think about what Paul is saying here, he says, In God we live, which is our existence, we move, which is our life direction and purpose. And we have our being, which is our intrinsic worth. All of that is rooted and grounded in the absolute character and being of God. In that way, we are his offspring, his representatives, his reflection. And if you think about what I said earlier with regard to popular culture and how the purpose of popular culture is to distract with the new and instantly gratify, you'll remember that I said that popular culture hates Absolutes. But Paul is saying to the contrary that everything is grounded in the absolute. Lost individuals can't sit still because they realize they have no purpose and direction, and therefore they seek after constant amusement and distraction. And what Paul is saying to the Athenians here in Acts 6.17 later summarizes to the Philippian church in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And if you think about what he's saying, whatever is true, but doesn't that change every day? That's what the Athenians would say, isn't it? Yeah. That's why we're constantly babbling about what's new. Novel. Won't there be a new truth tomorrow? Or as Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? Is there even truth at all? Paul says there's an absolute truth. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, who defines that? It's the one in which we live, move, and have our being. It's God. Paul doesn't say that we should reflect on what we think is lovely or commendable, but on what is excellent and worthy of praise. And so our religious, mental, and our cultural life should encourage us to acknowledge that all things, all of our reality, all of our lives are grounded in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. And just as a quick comment, it's in this fact that we are rooted in the absolute character and principles of God that I have a problem even with Christianity trying to transform popular secular culture into popular Christian culture. The very form of popular culture carries with it the original purposes, distraction, novelty, instant gratification. And when it's turned into Christian popular culture still tends to encourage the same kind of escapism and isolationism that secular popular culture does. But that's not what Paul encourages us to. In Colossians 3, he says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So godly religious life, godly mental life, godly cultural life, all promotes what is significant and absolute while it downplays the trivial, it's a mind that's set on the things that are above, not on what's new at this moment in my generation. You can see how this is such a challenge, not just to modern Americans, but to us as well, and how it would have been a challenge to the first century Athenians. And now having made his point and gotten their attention, Paul concludes, the times of ignorance God overlooked It's time to stop being consumed with what is new. God's overlooked that in the past, but now he commands everyone, everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. You can think about what is new every moment. You can be distracted by that. In this constant flood, this changing river of newness. That doesn't change the fact that there is that fixed point in time where God has appointed a day of judgment. And he is going to judge by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. What's the proof of that, That that this is true? He raised him from the dead. So the world cannot afford, the Athenians could not afford, we cannot afford to just continue with the living in the here and now mentality, whether we call it popular secular culture, popular Christian culture, whatever it is, even just our blind going forward with eat, sleep, work, and play. God commands everyone everywhere today to repent for there will be a reckoning. And, friends, we leave every Sunday and return to our lives within American culture. We are all inundated daily with the philosophies of our time Stoicism, Epicureanism, dressed up in new forms. Always the world's philosophy, the devil's philosophy. Always that we must seek our own satisfaction, be what we can be, make our own name in our own generation. And when we come back to church on Sundays, we are reintroduced to the biblical worldview. And as we learn from the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we find ourselves identified in Scripture. We are reminded of our need. We are reminded that we do live and move and have our being in the absolute character and reality of who God is. There are things from above that are true and honorable and commendable, and worthy of praise and excellent. And so when, God, when Paul spoke of judgment, that was certainly not the first time actually that such warnings had been given. <clears throat> in Joel chapter 2, for example, in the first verses, the prophet explains that God is threatening Israel with disciplinary judgment, not unlike Paul's doing here in Athens. At that time, as he was speaking through Joel, he was saying, I'm about to raise an army of foreign People who will march against your nation as a result of having forsaken me. And Joel 2.11 reads, the Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it. And that was a disturbing message through Joel because what God was really saying is I can stir up... Your enemies against you and call them my army. And we Christians perceive ourselves as constant victims of the secular forces of humanism and public schools and federal government and so on. And it's frightening to think that the Lord might be actually prompting some of our adversaries against us, allowing them to triumph in order to discipline us and inspire us to once more seek Him not that an interesting thought? If the God who could say that the Babylonians are my army, or the Assyrians are my army, could he say that our adversaries are his army, at least in the sense that they are a discipline of his people who have been forsaking him? Matthew Henry once said, God brings us into trials that he may bring us to Repentance and thus to himself. And so what happens is, is, is God is talking through Joel to Israel and saying, my, I will bring my army against you. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, he's merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn, not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. What is he saying? He's saying this is a course of action that's happening if you continue in this direction. But he holds out hope. Repent, he says. Who knows? Maybe... I will relent. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make your, not your heritage a reproach and a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people? Where is the God? And you'll see what God wants is He wants us to return to Him. How? By gathering the people, assembling the people, all of the families, from the oldest to the youngest, calling out to the Lord a confession, a desire to repent. And So I think if we translate that into today, it is... A desire and a commitment by us as a people of God to end complacency, end triviality, end our consumption of that which is so reflective of the world and its philosophies. We need to ask questions of ourselves like, what do I need to do to trim my life to obey Christ more fully? How do I need to more consistently offer myself as a living sacrifice? What is it in my life that is distracting me from keeping my mind on the things of above? What am I valuing that's reflective of the distracting philosophies of the world versus the pure things that that Paul mentioned in Philippians 4. How can I cleanse myself of self-indulgence in the pursuit of instant gratification and the endlessly novel so that I can become, as 2 Timothy 2 says, an instrument for noble purposes, made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Right? That's what we want to be. So Paul warned the Athenians about a coming judgment. Friends, you do not have to stand before the Son of God condemned for a life of self-indulgent rebellion. You do not. You can instead stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, embracing him as a Savior, Redeemer, and Intercessor. And that day, the good news is there were several who did. Dionysius, Damaris, and several others embraced faith. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards wrote. I like this quote from him. It's, He said, as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, came and retired to a place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk and, and contemplate and pray, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. I imagine the glory of the Son of God as a mediator between God, and man, and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and Sweet grace of love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens and appeared so ineffably excellent, an excellency great enough to swallow up everything else I was thinking of and conceiving. And it continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears felt an ardency of soul to be I I know not otherwise how to express just emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust to be full of Christ alone to love him with a holy and a pure love to trust in him to live upon him to serve and follow him to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity What I like about that quote is I think it captures what's meant by Joel that we read and returning to God with our whole heart. But I think it also captures what Paul meant in Acts 17 about seeking the Lord and understanding that we are rooted and grounded in him. I like how Edwards talks about how he contemplated the reality of Christ and his excellency that he couldn't otherwise express it beyond just saying, I wanted to be emptied. I wanted to be annihilated. (laughs) I like that thought. And become full of Christ alone. And the result... Of that kind of returning back to God, of seeking Him, of minds on, on the things of above and away from that which is endlessly new, the end result is as He ends in His quote, to love God with a holy and pure love, to serve and follow Him, to be made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. So that, I think that's where we want to go. So learn from our passage today. It's very tempting to become like the babblers of Athens, seeking after everything that's new. It's easy to let slip from our imagination a sense that we're a part of something so much bigger. Right? And it's not something that's endlessly new, but something that is rooted from the beginning of time. Not just the beginning of creation, but because God, God already, as we see in Ephesians and other places, talks about preparing good works for us before the foundation of the world, so all the way back in God's perfect plan. It is a story, a redemptive story, and a drama of which we have been a part that has a legacy that stretches back many generations, hundreds of generations. And we're told in the scriptures that in that drama of the redemptive story, we are kings and priests, in God's holy kingdom and members of a holy family. And he summons us each week to recognize that truth. Let's stop this complacency. Let's stop this triviality. And let's remember this drama that is so important, so relevant. It is a call to be humbly repentant and to seek God with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and for what we read in Acts 17. Thank you, Lord, for this interaction between Paul and the Athenians and just seeing how Paul was provoked by what he saw, but that led him not to run. It didn't lead him to to get angry, but it led him to think creatively, how can I speak to this culture, this people that is, is caught up in the endlessly novel, religious in a sense, certainly, but pursuing all the wrong things and ultimately facing judgment. May that be our hearts as well as we face the similar types of ideas and culture in our day in America, may we have the same desire to speak in the marketplace, to to challenge and point out the God that made all things and to whom all of us give account. It's in Jesus' name we pray.